0: These things have a tendency to spread because once you see civil disobedience by Palestinians and the crackdown by the Israeli military, then of course other parts of Palestine join in in solidarity and who knows what the response is going to be in the prisons. This is a really scary scenario. And what we see in that video, the burning, the cars being turned over, for tires and so on, this is what a real intifada looks like. We might be actually looking at the beginning of a coast to coast, north to south uprising throughout all of Palestine.
1: Welcome to the Miko Peled podcast. Hey everybody, this is Eli Gerzon, the producer and co-host here. Couple notes. One, we recorded this on Monday. More news happened. We did another recording on Tuesday. And of course, even more news happened with the terrible and deadly raid by Israeli forces. Uh, ...into Novelis and other areas of the West Bank. So we don't talk about that because it hadn't happened yet. Also, some of the sound quality is not great. Uh, apologize for that. We got new equipment and uh, shouldn't have uh, issues in the future. Lastly, Miko's been in Malaysia for a couple weeks and just got back on the day that we recorded the podcast. So there's actually going to be another episode coming out that will take place from Malaysia that we recorded when Miko was in Malaysia so it's going to chronology is going to be a little off just wanted to give you a heads up for that and uh, let us know what you think and take care welcome to the Miko Pallet podcast Miko back in Washington DC just returned from Malaysia how are you doing Miko
0: I'm doing okay. It's just a little jet lag, but I'm okay. Yeah, I got, it's a long trip all the way from Kuala Lumpur to Washington, D.C. It's too many hours to count, but I did get a chance to, um, I had a long layover in London. So I went out and met with some friends and spent the day in London. It was a lovely day. So I did that and that kind of broke the trip. And now I'm back here in D.C.
1: Well, I, I am impressed with your ability to just sit down and record a podcast after for all that travel.
0: Yeah, I got in last night. I went to sleep. Yeah. After a while, I think you get used to it. So, wow. so yeah. So, um, yeah. So, it was good. It was a good trip. It was it was an incredibly moving trip in, in a way that the conference I went to, the theme was Palestinian prisoners. And there were some Palestinians there from Gaza, all of whom were former prisoners. And one of them had a particularly moving story. Her name is Samar. And she was arrested. She's from Gaza, a refugee. And she was detained by the Israelis on mm-hmm. some terrorist charge. She she wasn't doing anything. She just picked up. It was 2005. And she was pregnant. Wow. And she was in prison for three or four years. So she gave birth. And she describes giving birth when you have, when you're shackled to the bed in a dungeon with no air, without the proper, without even the minimal prenatal care. And then having a baby in the prison. The baby was in prison until he was, I think, three years old. And no proper food, no proper nutrition, no proper, no light, no ability to go outside. And she said the first time when she was released, it was the first time he saw sunlight and it hurt his eyes. So it was one of these stories. I heard it throughout the conference several times. And every single time she told the story, everybody in the room was in tears. And, and she says, which is true, that as tragic and horrifying as it was for her and as her story is, again, imagine as a woman giving birth When you let one leg and one hand are tied to the bed and no access to proper care and so on. But uh, but she says I'm one of thousands, many more than thousands, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who have gone through this, men and women and children. And uh, I don't think people have the proper appreciation to just how central the prisoner issue to, to, to Palestinians. Every Palestinian knows either has been or knows someone close to them that has been or is in prison. And I think I may have said this before, but. Palestinians are considered the most incarcerated people on earth as a nation. Something like a million Palestinians have been incarcerated only since 1967. That's not counting the Palestinians prior to 67. And there's also the misconception that we're only talking about Palestinians who are from the West Bank and Gaza or East Jerusalem, but there are many Palestinian citizens of Israel who are also. Imprisoned as what they call for under a charge of security charges, which means just horrific conditions and no access to what we would consider minimal rights, even for pri- even for prisoners. And so, it's central to the Palestinian issue because these people are giving their their lives, and nobody comes out of prison with Israel. Israeli prisons the same: the ability to work, the ability to function, permanent physical injuries, permanent emotional and mental injuries that never get taken care of because there's never, the proper care is never available to them. And, uh, and it's, so anyway, so it, like I said, I don't think people have the, the appropriate appreciation to how central this is to the Palestinian issue and how sensitive of an issue it is to Palestinians. And now the man in charge of the prison system among every, many other things, many other, he's within the Israeli, what they call a security apparatus, is the kahanist racist thug. And he has a record of being a wimpy bully in other words, he was very tough as long as the Israeli army was right there to protect him. And he's in Hebron, harassing and terrorizing Palestinians and so on. And my good friend Isa knows him well, and they know each other from altercations. And he's the guy in charge. And other than the fact that he was a bully, but a cowardly bully and a racist stud, nobody really, he doesn't have really a record. And now he's in charge of all these really complicated agencies the police, the border police, which we talked about before, which is like a really a militarized force within the police, with within the Israeli police department, which is basically charged with dealing with Palestinians. It's got nothing to do with borders, patrolling the borders, but has they deal with Palestinians, they're particularly brutal. So all of them, all of this is under his command. The prison system is under his command. And all the other agencies are all these kind of civil civilian agencies, but they deal particularly with Palestinians, which make them particularly brutal. And and so this man who was really a nobody is now in charge of all of this. And he decided to take on the Palestinian prisoner population as a whole. And God saved everybody because this is not a small thing. And he, one of his campaign promises was that he calls them all terrorists. These are political prisoners. He calls them all terrorists. He says the terrorists, the conditions in the jails are too good. It's like a summer camp and he's going to end the summer camp for terrorists and he's going to deny them this and he's going to deny that. And lately he's actually started enforcing new policies. First one, while had to do with the nutrition, I guess some of the prisons have their own bakeries and to provide fresh bread for the prisoners. And so he came out with this video where he's eating fresh pita and he says, no more pita, no more laffa, which is like a nickname for the pita, kind of pita bread for terrorists. And then he came out a few days later with another policy where Palestinians will only be given four minutes to shower. And then after four minutes, the water will be shut off. And basically he's declared war on an entire population. We're talking about thousands of prisoners. And these are not people who are gonna take them lying down. They're already in jail. These are tough, brave people. And they just came out, they just published a letter that was sent to Ben Gvir, but they sent it to an Israeli journalist for Ben Gvir. So it this was all over the Israeli news. And the prisoners have their own their own committee, general prisoners committee the higher committee, which they discuss policy, they discuss whether or not there's going to be a, a strike and so on. So they have cleared an uprising, basically, in all of the jails, you know, to protest these these steps, these new policies by Ben Gvir. He says, and they say very clearly, which is very true, he decided to light a match over this very dangerous barrel of gunpowder. And they say he's using us in order to, to cover for his lack of Ability to, I don't know, do anything else. It's like he's he's trying to prove a point and he's using it, doing it on their backs. And uh, this is about, that. it's not just about whether or not they get pita bread or whether or not this policy or that policy is against them. It's about the fact that really what this is, or it's what is seen as a de- declaration of war against Palestinians. And uh, they say they're going to spill blood. They refer to him as the Hana's uh, grandson. And and uh, I don't know if you know the term, the Hilius are these juvenile delinquent settlers who live like, and exist throughout the West Bank in the, and in the wilderness, if you will, of the West Bank. And they terrorize Palestinians all over the place. And those guys were also responsible for the Wabsche family burning that occurred a few years ago, where the entire family, almost an entire family was burned to death in the village of Duma. Anyway, so he refers to him as this, uh, the grandson of Kahana. And this boy from the from the Hills youth, and he says, we have nothing to lose. We're already in prison and we're willing to die. That's why we were engaged in the struggle to begin with. We realized that we might die, but for us to die is part of what we signed up for a struggle. And that's one of the things you accept when you sign up for a struggle is that you might die. And and he says, and they say, any drop of blood that is spilled is going to be on him. And it's true Then every drop of blood that is spilled is on him and on Netanyahu, actually, who, would nominate, who would put him in this position, who gave him this enormous amount of power. And again, like I said, every Palestinian friend I have has been in jail, some more, some less, some for many years, some for fewer years, all depending on the particular situation. Their kids have been in in prison. Some of them have children that are imprisoned right now, many of them without trial, many of them with administration detention, which goes on for years sometimes, which means that they are detained and held in jail without trial and without being charged. And Israel does that. They just renew it every few months on and on. The pressure is building and it's hard to say whether or not Ben-Gvir finally met his match and whether or not who's going to win. But he's happy. He's like Nero torching Rome just to see the fire. I think he's got that kind of a madness. He's willing to burn the whole place down just to enjoy the flames, just to see the flames. But it's terribly concerning because these are people, they're in jail, they're in prison. And as it is, their conditions are horrible, and they've all gone through torture, and they've all gone through time, and huge amounts of time, in solitary. And uh, I know most of this from just from stories from Palestinians, but there's also a, a bit of a sidetrack, side but there's a prisoner's museum. It's called the Abu Jihad Prisoners Museum at Al-Quds University on the com- campus of Al-Quds University near Jerusalem. And there, th- this museum, is. It's I think it's one of a kind and it's uh, in, in just how comprehensive it is and it's dedicated to prisoners. And they have a room there where you go downstairs like into a basement or a dungeon. And then you go down a few steps and they close the door on you and that's it. You're in this tiny little cell and it's pitch black and it's just you and you're, that's it. There's nobody there. There's nobody, you got nothing, it's just dark. It's horrifying the stuff that these guys go through. And um, some of them are very young. There's a story of uh, Ahmed Manasra, who who I talked about before. So anyway, this is incredibly uh, dangerous. And uh, I am terrified, again, also because I know many people who have their children in jail. And I know that at any point in time, any Palestinian stands that might be imprisoned by Israel, whether they do something or whether they're accused of doing something without having done anything and so on.
1: But this type of stuff you're talking about, chaining a pregnant woman... As she gives birth, so much of this is just, it's pure cruelty. There's just absolutely no other way to to look at it. It's a terrorism. It's torture. It's just pure cruelty.
0: The problem is not that Israelis don't know. It's that Israelis agree with this. They don't think there's anything wrong. Some people are apathetic, don't care one way or the other. And there's a small minority of people who think, who would like to see this change. But by and large, as a society, Israel Israelis know what's going on because everybody's got a brother or a cousin or a father or somebody that, or a good, best friend that works in one of the security agencies, either the either in the jails or in the secret service police or in the police or in the army, everybody. so it's not, people don't know this. This is not a secret. Anybody can go in. Uh, Almost anybody can go in and observe what happens in a military court. I've been a couple of several times. It's very easy to get in and and listen to these ridiculous proceedings that take place. And, and the problem is that, yeah, of course people know. And the thing is they think it's okay. It's not that somebody says, oh, bad apples. You should correct this. We should, no, this is fine. This is how it should be. This is how it's. And we saw these videos that came out a few weeks ago that Amro posted. One of a soldier telling him that Ben Gvir is going to come soon and he's going to clear up this uh, whorehouse that he Isa runs here and all this all this nonsense will end. Another one of a, an Israeli soldier attacking an Israeli activist and now this latest video that I think is got more than twenty million views already of Isa himself being attacked for absolutely no reason while giving a tour to, to a New Yorker or a journalist and all this is on film and the soldiers don't care and now the guy that actually thinks it's what they're doing is absolutely fine and should always be, and that's how it should have been, and is protecting them, he's the guy that's in charge. And Israelis knows this, and Israelis know this. Israelis are up in arms about this, about the, uh, the changes that Netanyahu's government wants to make in the judiciary. And if those 100,000 Israelis were protesting for something, they're blocking roads, they're blocking main highways, they're like out there, they could have demanded releasing the prisoners. They could demand lifting the blockade on Gaza. Why, why are two and a half, over two million people being held in this uh, concentration camp? by Israelis, you know, Why are we keeping political, why are they holding thousands of political prisoners in such horrible conditions? Why are they treating children like this? These 100,000 people are left their home to protest. Obviously, when they care about something, they get up and they, when they do things. They don't care about this. They think this is okay. They're happy with this. And just to say, it reminds me of something else that I saw this morning, has this whole version of history where the events of 1948, the and ethnic cleansing and the massacres never happened. But on the ground, people know that they happened. Of course, in, in some of these activists, some of these Ben-Gvir types openly say to the Palestinians, we're going to give you another Nakba, another catastrophe, in other words, the repeat of 1948.
1: Ethnic cleansing, to be clear, they're, th- they're openly <laughs> threatening more <Yes>. ethnic cleansing. <laughs> yeah.
0: And there's the movie, Tantura, which just came out and, this, and has Israelis testifying to what they did. And this is my, my father's generation. So these guys are in their 90s. And I just watched one today, and we can put the link in, of a guy who committed one, one of the most heinous crimes, even for Israelis in 1948. And he talks about it quite, he says, we had to do what we had to do. And uh, there was a terrible massacre in the city of lids where a couple hundred people took refuge in a big mosque. in the And the, it's called the Hampshire Mosque.
1: Yeah. We talked about this last time, I think.
0: We talked about this. And the guy just describes how he shot the thing. And then he opened the door and he didn't see anybody in the hall. Everybody was, was glued to the ceiling and the floor, and walls. But he says that like he's not trying to hide it. He's not thinking we should never have done this. This was wrong. The attitude is this is how it has to be. This is, there's no other choice. This is what, how things need to be. And everybody's fine with it. It's what are you going to do? It's an attitude that allows for this to happen. This is precisely why it is happening because they allow it to happen. They're not standing, nobody's standing up against it except for the people who, and the people who don't have funding or the ability to vote, to to voice their thoughts and opinions in a way that can reach enough people. Yeah.
1: So we're focusing on what is important. I do want to take a detour to those 100,000 Israelis because people are going to want to know from their perspective. What is so important to protest? You said something about the Supreme Court. I don't really understand. And I'm guessing a lot of people, other, other people do. So can you make the best argument for what, they're, what those 100,000 people are protesting against? Today,
0: if the Knesset, these early House of Representatives passes a law that you think is unconstitutional, you can go to the court and the court can strike it down, theoretically. They wanna change that. They do not want to give the court, they're saying that the court has too much power and should not be allowed to strike down a law.
1: They being right-wing Israelis like ben Gabi. Be now, government. Now, government.
0: And they're saying that the procedure by which the judges are nominated to the high court is, is not transparent enough. It's not good. They want to change that. They basically want to have more, more say as the party in the parliament right now. They want to have more say in how judges are appointed. And of course, they want to appoint judges that they agree with because right now, even though Palestinians never win when they go to the Israeli High Court, they, to to Israel, to right wing Israelis, to people who voted for Netanyahu and voted for this the government, the court is leftist, it's made up of mostly leftists. And so being leftist, of course, is a curse in Israeli politics. And so they want to open it up in a way that it won't be so leftist. So they want to change the procedure by which the court is, is, is chosen. So those are basically the two things that, that And for Israelis, this is, it's an erosion of the rights of Israeli Jews within the larger apartheid scheme. It doesn't help Palestinians in any way. None of this affects Palestinians. This affects only the the sensibilities of privileged Israelis. And that's what this is all about. And also, I think, largely, Israelis hate the face of this government. They hate to know that Ben Gvir, who belongs in the West Bank, does not belong in the government in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. It does not belong to as in such a prominent position to represent them and to represent the Israeli government. And uh, now they have him, this is the face, he is really the face of the Israeli government. And Israelis who didn't vote for Netanyahu, the Israelis who didn't vote for these parties are embarrassed by that. They don't want him to be the face. They want Israelis who are slightly more polite or whatever. And that's the other reason for this outpouring of people protesting, but it's too late because these people didn't vote for Netanyahu anyway, and he has a majority without them. So they can protest, they can have 100,000 people on the streets every day. It's not gonna make any difference because Netanyahu has a very safe majority. And like I said, the people who voted for him are not protesting, are not out, they're not out there with these crowds. Unless they go to, from time to time, they, they jump into the crowd and beat people up, but, but they, his people are not protesting, quite the opposite. The people, the majority that voted for him and his, his coalition are very happy. So they can protest and it means nothing. And Netanyahu doesn't have to call new elections. He's very safe. And so we're going to be seeing him and this government, unless some, something unforeseen happens for years to come.
1: Wow. Yeah. They really don't have term limits in, over in Israel, do they? Because he's just been in power for decades.
0: He was in power. He was prime minister in the 90s. And then he lost. And then he came back, what is it, 12 years ago or so? And he's been pretty much prime Yeah, he's the longest ranked prime minister. And there are no term limits other than so if you don't want to vote for somebody else. But Israelis want him. The only reason they vote for him or the only reason the, the Likud party keeps voting for him to be the leader of the party is because he wins and they see him as a leader. And really he is, and I've said this many times, he's really, only, really the only adult in the room of in that sphere of Israeli politicians. Compared to him, they're all a bunch of children running around just still with their noses running. He's huh. one who's really gives the sense of a statesman, of somebody who's responsible, who can really run things. And he's run things down. He's made, in the more than decade that he's been in charge, the public health sector has been is bankrupt. Israel used to have, at least for Israeli Jews, a really good health, socialized health system. A very good health system. Today, people who can afford, the only people who use that health care system are the poorest of the poor. Most Israelis go to, go to a private doctor. Then the education system also used to be really good for Israelis. Granted, within the sphere of a privilege, but there was a very good... And, and even universities were not that expensive. Now university, the prices for higher education is prohibitive. Public transportation was great. You never needed, you didn't need it. If you lived in a city, you didn't need a car. And if you didn't live in the city, you didn't need a car either, really, because public transportation was good and reliable. Now, the only people who use public transportation are people who are too poor to have a car and it's a particular population. Actually, everybody else has cars and there's all you see every driving around the country are new highways and new tunnels and new highways and new bridges and new tunnels and hundreds of thousands of cars every year new cars every year. And he's very proud of the fact that he has brought this neoliberal policy and killed what was actually a very good welfare state. Granted, good for only a select group of people, but still, had these benefits been made available to everyone, including Palestinians, then it could have been a very, much like a European social democratic state. So he's really run the country down. from the people who are rich are happy, the people who are poor. And for Palestinians, of course, it's a living. But, you know, people like him because he brings up this, this air of statesmanship, of authority. Yeah. And he get, he gets elected. That's really the bottom line. He gets the votes.
1: Yeah. Okay. So you did say you wanted to focus on Ben Gavir and the prisoners. Is there more you want to say about that topic? No, I
0: think we covered it. I just, again, I think that it'll be interesting to see how far he goes and how far he's allowed to go with before he's in over is because he's, he's a nobody. He's never done anything. He didn't serve in the military. They wouldn't let take him in because he was. And I think I don't think he was he would actually wanted to go. He probably would have found ways to get out. He did find ways to get out. And I think part of it had to do with his mental state and part of it had to do with his politics. I can't remember the exact details of how he got out of serving. And he's always been this kind of, in fact, there's somebody tweeted, there's this whole report coming out about him, how he would, whenever there was anything going on, he'd always be the guy sitting in the car far away where it's safe and sending other people to do whatever it is the hell that they were doing. But there's all this testimony about for people who actually as kids knew him and operated in that sphere. And that's how he was raised. That's how he was raised and, and brought into this by Khan itself, I mean Khan himself in Jerusalem. It's, he's a nobody. And the Palestinian prisoners are some of the most impressive people you'll ever met, you'll ever meet. These are principled, brave people who stand up, and again, the vast majority of whom have never have never had anything to do with armed resistance. Only a small fraction of Palestinian prisoners have actually had anything to do with armed resistance. And and these are not people who are easily bent. And when they're determined, they're determined. And when they say go, Palestinians listen. And if they say major strike or days of rage and Palestinians are going to act, and then we'll see. Like I said, he may, we'll see who wins this, but it's frightening. It's really frightening, particularly that I know people personally who are going to be affected by this, are affected by this. It's a very, very dangerous game. Very dangerous game. It's Nero trying burning Rome just to look at the flames. That's what we're talking about here. And so it's scary that he's got so much power.
1: And so what do you think could happen? There could be so much backlash against him by other Israelis, by the international community. He'll just keep going. It sounds like there has to be a limit. I don't know
0: know if this will ever reach the international community. They barely talk about Israel bombing Gaza, so they're not going to care about Palestinians in prisons, and it might end up just Palestinian prisoners. If they go on strike, then if the entire prison population goes on strike, and they've done this before, then... You mean hunger strike? Yeah. Yeah. And the announcement was that starting Ramadan, Ramadan is next month. And it uh, starts either in March or beginning of April. But uh, it's interestingly it coincides with uh, Passover this year. But it's then the torture and the beatings and the horrors that they go through when they declare hunger strike is really horrible. And if this goes beyond the prisons, which it very likely will, there will be general strikes and protests throughout all of Palestine. And so this is the type of thing that could go get out of hand very quickly. And Palestinians will pay a heavy price. There's no question. Israelis might be killed too. But Palestinians will pay a heavy price, and the price that Palestinian prisoners pay in terms of punishment, in terms of solitary, in terms of torture, in terms of all kinds of things that they go through, and there's no supervision on the outside. And so this is I'm just, I dread to think where this can go. And you don't know what his limits are. We haven't seen him actually do anything that brought about a serious response yet.
1: Yeah. quick fact check, Ramadan starts on March 22nd and lasts for 30 days. And Land's Day is actually March 30th, and so people have talked about in Boston doing events around Land Day, but maybe having it actually before Ramadan starts so that it doesn't Passover, interfere with that.
0: The reason it's irrelevant that Passover is because during Passover, typically East Jerusalem and the West Bank are in lockdown. And during Ramadan, Palestinians, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians come to Jerusalem to pray. And usually Israel gives is slightly more lenient in giving people permission to come to Jerusalem during Ramadan. So they give more permits to Palestinians. And we're talking about enormous numbers of people. So now if it falls during Passover and they're going to try to block them from coming to Jerusalem to pray, again, it's what he's going to have to deal with this very, very delicately or, or this we're going to have like believable violence going on. Because again, during the Jewish holidays, the West Bank is under lockdown. So they can't go wow. go so that's we got something we got to look to look forward to as well
1: yeah as you're saying yeah it's it starts on April 5th lasting for a week so it's it is right in the middle of Ramadan like you're saying
0: I hate to be to sound
1: pessimistic but
0: I think people need to we need to you know Bernie Sanders was on CNN saying he called the Israeli government racist and said that uh, money that Israel gets needs to come with some ties and uh, so I don't know but he's the only one saying these things are on um, the same breath. The Senate has the bill coming out, wanting to deny Palestinian refugees, money, the money from the UN agency that deals with refugees. And so the United States is not being helpful. Quite the opposite.
1: Yeah. yeah. But there are a lot of organizations focused on Palestinian and- prisoners. Is there... Maybe a way that we can have a call to action for people to check out those organizations, support them, get on their email list, donate.
0: There's the Palestinian. The official one is the Palestinian Prisoners. It's the Office of the Palestinian Prisoners, I think it's called. It's a, it's in Ramallah, and that's it's run by, by officials, and they are the ones who deal typically with the issue of the prisoners and policy and stuff like that. And then there
1: is... Another one is Adamir.
0: Yeah, the mirror is the other one. That's right. So that's a good one to for people to look into. You know? Yeah, they got a website. social media is yeah. yeah, it's, it's organized so people can look into that. And that's really all that's out there. And There's very little that we hear about the Palestinian prisoners because it's such a tight, and they're held in such a tight environment that it never reaches the point where people actually talk about it or hear what's going on. And it's really horrifying, really quite horrifying.
1: Yeah. But as you say, these organizations do focus on supporting prisoners and sharing the information so that the word can get out to as many people as possible. So definitely check out look, Adamir.
0: Look at Adamir, and they have this interactive map that shows all the prisons and detention centers. And for such a small country... I thought I knew all of them, and I guess I didn't. It's incredible to see how many prisons there are. And these are prisoners for Palestinians. It's really beyond belief that such a small country has so many facilities. And it's not, let's see, Jerusalem. Musculpia, it's got Musculpia, it's got all for you. It's really quite a horrifying picture. So this is a picture that everybody should see.
1: Yeah, we'll share this on social media and um, and I include a link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, you get all the details about the particular, the
1: particular detention center or jail.
0: Wow, this is pretty horrible. Yeah. And actually in my book, in The General Sun, I talk a lot about the prisoners because i met so many people who were former prisoners. And there's a whole chapter about Abu Ali Shaheen, who was the leader of the prisoners movement for decades, even though he was in solitary most of the time that he was in jail, close to 20 years. And his story and the story of the prisoners movement on um, this whole, th- there's nothing like it. There's no, no equivalent to it in anywhere in the world what the Palestinians were able to do to better themselves while they're in prison and also to communicate and create policy and survive and make political decisions and so on. So there's a whole, there's a whole, there's, a whole, there's, a whole, there's a quite a lot about that in my, in the general son. So if people are happy, if people should, if they want to learn, there's, that's one good resource, though I say
1: so myself. <laughs> yeah, fair, totally. Okay, great. So check out Adamir. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great. Okay. All
0: right. Good talking to you.
1: Yes. Thank you, Miko. Welcome home. I uh, hope you get over your jet lag as soon as possible, and talk to you next time. All right, thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hey, so we just did this podcast yesterday, and so many of the things that Miko said would happen one of one of the important things came to fruition. Basically, Miko, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, uh, is that, that know, a fair? Is that a fair framing? A fair way to frame it? Yeah, yes.
0: Everything is connected, of course, and and it all goes back to the uh, the work of this lunatic who is now in charge of all the entire defense apparatus, which means everything that relates to the lives of Palestinians. And uh, and uh, there's been a lot of there've been several Palestinians.
1: I don't even know what to call it, but armed
0: resistance coming out from Jerusalem,
1: just in the last twenty four hours.
0: Oh, no, this is like in the next couple of weeks.
1: But but this video, you said, let's describe this video. We'll we'll share it on social media, but do you want to describe what happens?
0: Yeah, but I'm giving some background, of
1: course. Sorry.
0: So the the background is that the sort of those what comes first, the chicken or the egg. But the, the background is, of course, that conditions for Palestinians around Jerusalem are severe. When you drive around some of the neighborhoods where Palestinians live and pay taxes, municipal taxes, They are actually refugee camps. The is one refugee camp and some of the other towns, and some of the other places, big parts of them look like, in fact, refugee camps. They get very little, if any services, and they pay enormous taxes municipal taxes. And and with Ben Gvir being in, in charge of all the security apparatus and everything has to do with Palestinians, and with his, his actions and his threats towards Palestinians in general, but particularly the prisoners, there, there has been a rise in the Palestinian armed resistance. And parts of that has been coming up from Jerusalem. And so he announced, Ben Gvir announced tougher measures. Against Jerusalem. And what has already happened have been, has been an increase in arrests. Over 100 people have been arrested. So there have been raids into Palestinian communities around, in and around Jerusalem. And uh, home demolitions, you know, there are around 18,000 home demolition orders in the Jerusalem area alone. And a home demolition order just means that there's been an order to demolish your home and you don't know when it's going to happen. They just show up one morning and very early, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., kick everybody out and demolish the house. So you live in this fear all the time that you don't know what's gonna happen. So he's been enforcing a lot of these and been, there's been been a rise in home demolitions in Jerusalem. And he was threatening to embark on an operation, which is like the operations that we've seen in Janine and Nablus over the years, where the army comes in, heavy-handed brigades of special forces, brigades of paratroopers, brigades of who knows what else, with helicopters and God knows what else, very heavy, and destroy and kill people and so on. And he's been threatening to do that at Jerusalem. So what we're seeing to so then, the local leadership decided that they were going to embark on a campaign of, of strikes and civil disobedience. And... It's been going on, so people are not going to, so shops are not opening, roads are being blocked. So, of course, the Israeli army comes in, or the police, whatever the case may be, and, and they come in hard. And so th- there's a huge escalation right now in and around Jerusalem. And we talk about the fact that Ramadan is around the corner, and Ramadan is going to be at the same time, or at least part of it is going to be during, or Passover is going to be during the time of Ramadan, and that's going to cause a lot of problems around Jerusalem. They're calling it a, a civil disobedience campaign, and
1: yes. uh, so, Migo, you talked about blocking the roads and you talked about arm resistance. Yeah, th- it's very dramatic. This video that you just shared with me, where there's burning cars flipped over, blocking roads. And this video was taken at night. It's very dramatic. I don't know how viral it's going to go, but it seems like it's a pretty powerful image. So, not just arm resistance, very creative, and bold. Yes, yeah, civil disobedience, you could say. Yeah, so I just want to emphasize that we yeah, can't end video on the podcast, but this is a very powerful, dramatic image and very creative.
0: Yes, and we're going to see a lot more of that. And, of course, uh, that means we're going to see a lot more of the Israeli military coming in and a lot of Palestinian blood will be shed. And, again, it's Ingvir is lighting a fire that nobody knows if he's going to be able to control and nobody knows, you know, where it's going to go. And I've been saying this, you know, we're on the edge of a precipice. And Ben-Gvir is pushing everybody closer and closer to the edge. And what we're seeing here, this this escalation in Jerusalem and the upcoming and very well to be expected escalation that we're going to see in the prisons. We talked about the letter of the prisoners' roads uh, to an Israeli journalist, but really for Ben-Gvir, the minister of national security, who, you know, the prisons are part of his, are under his control under his command. And uh, pal- the, the, everybody, this, everybody works together, people work together, people communicate, the Palestinians. And uh, when we see what takes place throughout all of Palestine, the poverty and the abuse and the home demolitions in the South and the Nefab, when we see the horrifying conditions the Palestinian citizens of Israel live in, in what is called the mixed cities like Lid and Ramleh, and so on, we, we the, again, I compared it to Neir, Neir, the Emperor Nero burning Rome. This is horrifying, uh, this is really dangerous. And it all goes back to the sense that they gave the the torch to the guy who likes to look at flames. And Netanyahu is not really clear if he even cares or if he's still in charge or what the hell is going on. One would have expected, I think, that he might have wanted to control this, but he doesn't seem to be doing it, to be controlling this at all. And these things have a tendency to spread because once you see... You see there's still disobedience by Palestinians and the crackdown by the Israeli military. Then, of course, other parts of Palestine join in solidarity. And once we see, and who knows what the response is going to be in the prisons, this is really a really scary scenario. And the, the what you have see, what we see in that video, the burning, the cars being turned over, for tires and so on. This is what an intifada looks like. This is what a real intifada, a real uprising looks like.
1: That's the thing. In all your years, we can talk about the intifada. Could you tell us the years of the first and the second Intifada? The
0: first Intifada in we get at the end of 1987. Okay. And, and then the next one was a, like, catalyst. In a way, it was a catalyst to what Well, I just one.
1: want to brief. I, I know anything I could ask you, you're going to have a long- It's not going to be long. But answer, just, but I'm, just just, like, I'm just trying to put into frame, Like it's been a while. We yeah. had one, you said 87, one was around maybe 2000. And so now, is this the first time that you've thought this looks like it could be a third Intifada in that time?
0: Yes or no, a full-scale uprising like we saw in those two instances. Um, we only saw small outbursts of things that looked like it that lasted a few days. This one, if this goes on, then the ground's going to be burning for a very long time. And who knows what's going to calm this down. And just to finish what I was saying, the first intifada led to the Oslo Accord and forced Israel to sit down and negotiate with the Palestinians. Of course, the Oslo Accords turned out to be a sham. And that's why the Second Intifada broke out at the end of 2000, because Palestinians realized that they were being conned. There was no intention to give them a state. There was no intention to actually give them any rights, that the whole Oslo peace process was only to strengthen the occupation and give Israel more control. And, uh, and then we saw what was known as what is known as the civilian kind of unarmed peaceful resistance, which began around 2005 and went on till a couple of years ago, it spread throughout. The West Bank, we saw protests every Friday and they were met by enormous amounts of violence by the army to the point where they were exhausted. Palestinians are not no longer engaged in these organized peaceful resistance that we saw that was happening every Friday for many years. They're just exhausted. The toll was so heavy. It was the price that Palestinians paid. It was so high. So many were killed. So many were arrested. So many were injured that they just couldn't keep it up. And so we see now is
1: we see outbursts here and there. Miko, just to put another point on that, you're talking about the year 2005 and there's nonviolent resistance. That's also the launch of the BDS movement, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, where the narrative I understood is that we're trying to struggle within Palestine. There's only so much that we can do in this situation. We need to call on people around the world to stand in solidarity with us and put pressure on this apartheid state by boycotting it, calling for sanctions, divesting from Israel.
0: Exactly. And that's exactly part of that resistance that was unarmed resistance. Now, granted, Palestinians have been locally engaged in different forms of unarmed resistance for the last 75 years, but this, of course, is a much more organized, both the civil, what's called the popular resistance and BDS were launched around the same time as actions to the armed resistance, which of course doesn't Stand a chance against the Israeli military might, and the uh, and the fact that the Palestinians are limited in what they can do, so they try they go for the, they try a more global campaign, and uh, and here we are all these years later, and things are only getting worse. Israel is getting stronger, both internationally, and uh, and and it's the destruction that goes on in Palestine is uh, by the Israeli government is just unbelievable, even by Isra- Israeli standards. But that's that's what we're that's now we're at a point where nothing has worked for a very long time. All these other efforts have made some, there's some results, but really nothing that stopped Israel, nothing that really substantially gave Palestinians a platform or tangible results, tangible things that they can actually look at and say, yes, we have made progress. We won on this front or that front. The successes have been small relative to the catastrophic reality. And so here we are again, Palestinians are, have to make a choice. And the only example that we saw of something that was really incredible and scared the hell out of Israel is the short uprising that took place in May of 2021, where all of Palestine, one big solidarity campaign of strikes and civil disobedience. But that's it, so who knows? So this might be the beginning, we might be actually looking at the beginning of something that's so severe. And again, we're looking at people like Hebron, like Isamro, who are completely dedicated to unarmed resistance and civil disobedience and are very good at it, albeit paying a heavy price. And then we look at other parts of Palestine where People opt to, to engage in different kinds of resistance. And it's hard to tell if this is what Netanyahu wants, if this is what the Israelis want, if this is what fear wants. They're pushing it in a direction that's very hard to understand because this is not going to lead to anything good for anyone. Can
1: you say a little bit more about the May 2021? Where could people find more about that? Or did the campaign have a name? It
0: was officially, the official campaign was, was a solidarity campaign with Israeli attacks in Alexa. And so that was that, that was how it started. And then it went on from there. And there was a total day of, sol- of days of solidarity and days of, of rage throughout all of Palestine. But in May of 2021 is the uprising of May of 2021 is really what is what it's known as, or the Alexa, aqsa But al things are going on or happened over the years. But al the Israeli attacks in al attacking King uh, Roshia prison, al was what uh, prompted that particular one. So we've got the prisoners, we've got the civil disobedience in and around Jerusalem. We saw a cracking down of the Israelis in Jerusalem and in the in the prisons. That's good enough material to start a coast-to-coast, north-to-uprising throughout all of Palestine.
1: From the river to the sea.
0: And from the northern, from Syria to Alaska, and Lebanon to Aqaba in the south. And Palestine is one country. Palestinians have shown this over and over again, that they, that's what they say and that's what
1: they mean. So when you're talking about from the north to the south, are there many Bedouins organizing? Have you seen anything around that?
0: Oh, yeah. Palestinian Aqaba have been organizing and they're engaged in campaigns and of just civil disobedience and campaigns and all sorts of actions on a regular basis.
1: And that's anything true. in particular recently that would maybe go along with this sort of wave that you're Imagine. Well, the last thing saw, think- in May of
0: 2021, settlers, West Bank settlers, went into all the areas where Palestinians reside, Palestinian citizens of Israel reside. So that is some of the cities in the Nakab and the communities in the Nakab, from the city of Merisabah, which is a big city, to the smaller communities, Palestinian communities. We saw them in Lid. They were they came in armed in order to, to cause trouble, and, and the Nakab the, the don't, didn't take it. And so they were prepared, and the, the settlers were... Just, just ran away. But it was dangerous for Palestinians. Whoa, they were prepared. You got to say more about that. What? Bedouin traditionally carry arms. They've always had arms. And it's very easy, actually, to get weapons. And later on, Israel came in with very heavy forces and found caches of, of weapons in the in the Bedouin-Palestinian communities. But they know that they are under attack and that they have to be prepared for the day where there's going to be another attempt to displace them and so on. And the numbers of home demolitions per year, it's thousands of home demolitions per year just in the knuckle, just just for the Bedouins. Bedouin, Palestinian Bedouin. So they are prepared both in that regard. And also there's, there are campaigns and there's ongoing Palestinian activists who are engaged in all sorts of veins and work on the ground every single day, because there's a great deal of work in the Nakba, because the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians there live without rights, without water, unrecognized towns and all kinds of stuff. So we can talk about the Nuka another day. I've written extensively about it in the past on my, it's on micopella.com. People can find my articles. But throughout all, but in May of 2021, they stood up. And before that, there were other campaigns over the years where the Palestinian Bedouin were resisting. And I was there actually at one time, I think it was 20, I forget, 15 or something, 16. Israel had a plan. It was called the Proverb Plan. It was a massive expropriation of land and and pushing out people from their communities that was stopped, at least officially, by the Bedouin ending up and not allowing it to happen. And so they're they're, they're very effective and they have a history of standing up in resistance that goes back a very long time to the time of the British. And so it's, again, people are prepared to fight. People are prepared to, to stand up for their rights, and they will. Wow.
1: Yeah. So is there more you want to say On this topic, are we just doing conjecture now? Have you noticed people saying anything publicly about plans besides the letter by the prisoners?
0: No, I haven't heard of any, anything. The prisoner's announcement was that they will begin a hunger strike when Ramadan begins, which is in a few weeks. And uh, there are Palestinians who are already engaged in a hunger strike right now, as we speak. There are always Palestinians who are engaged in hunger strikes that doesn't even make it to the news. But as we speak, there are already Palestinians because basically Palestinians use the hunger strike as a tool to protest the Israeli policy of of administrative detention, which means detention without limits, but with no charges and no court. And uh, there are many Palestinians who stood up and uh, went on severe hunger strikes in order to protest that. And they pay a heavy price at the end. At one point, Israel may release them a little bit earlier, but they pay a very heavy price and get very little out of it. And so there are already Palestinians that are doing this. This would be a larger campaign where all the prisoners throughout all the prisons do this. And we've seen this in the past. We've seen campaigns like this in the past, where all the prisoners throughout the entire country go on strike. And the first thing that Israel does, the, the, there's a crucial element in the in the hunger strike where they have to have two things in order to be able to survive. And that's water and salt. And the first thing that the prison authorities do is they get rid of the salt and they raid the cells to make sure that there isn't any salt hiding anywhere. Because without salt, you're hunger strikers will die very quickly. And so in the past, the water and salt has been the hashtag or like symbol of, of the hunger strikers. And this is, this, you know, I've been saying this, it's complete madness. This is leading us to complete madness.
1: Yeah. So exactly. You're, you're just, already we're seeing terrible things. And then you're predicting that Ramadan and Passover, that will, we have the planned hunger strike and that who knows what will happen. During Passover. Uh,
0: they don't allow Palestinians to go to Jerusalem during Ramadan. Yeah. Which is what they do when there's when Passover is there. I was there last Ramadan. I tried to go from Jerusalem to Ramallah. The way that I usually go, which is this big checkpoint called the Kalandia checkpoint. And it's a massive checkpoint. There's always tons of traffic going both ways. It's a massive terminal. Buses and cars and trucks. And I got there, not thinking it was a Friday in Ramadan. Not thinking that Israel would even dream of shutting it down on a Ramadan on Friday, and they did. And all they allowed were people to take buses to the checkpoint, cross the checkpoint, and then get on buses that will take them to to Jerusalem to pray. And we're talking about numbers of people that it's just a sea and ocean of people going back and forth. But the place was closed and no traffic was allowed. Only the buses that were designed, designated for this. Palestinians obviously have a great deal of patience and so it worked. But if this was completely closed during Ramadan and people couldn't go to pray Jerusalem, I hate to even think what this would mean.
1: So then when you say closed, what does that mean in practical terms? Closure means
0: it's closure. Nobody can leave. But the West Bank is The West Bank, the Palestinian enclaves, the Palestinian ghettos within the West Bank are locked down. Nobody can go out. People cannot, so,
1: so there's not n- what you're describing just now. It's not, oh, you can take a bus, but you have to walk. No, like you can't it's go closed.
0: No, it's closed. It means they can't go. All the checkpoints are closed. Nobody can go anywhere. And that's typically what happens in Rosh Hashanah. It happens during Sukkot. It happens during a Passover. I and, think and, one or two other, maybe Independence Day, one or two others. And, you know, it's become a joke. At Passover, the Jews celebrate freedom from slavery, and they impose these restrictions and they imprison millions of Palestinians. And again, Ben-Gvir is the guy in charge. He's the guy making policy. He's the guy with a finger on the trigger or the light on to light the match on the, on top of the, oh my God, the barrel of gunpowder. Gun I can't, it's madness. It's just absolute madness. The only reason at the end of the day, there was some small amount of reason that kind of was projected into these situations to prevent total catastrophe, whether it was a particular government minister in the cabinet, whether it was a particular person on, there's always somehow somebody managed to avert the catastrophe. Now we've got zealots, these lunatics. They don't want any measure of reason, interjected into this, and they're in control. He's the minister that's in charge of all of this, and he can, it's his prerogative. The policies that he makes are the policies that will be in place. So we'll see how Ramadan and Passover, how Palestinians are able to survive this, but it's, we've got this, it's compounding. We've got the prisoners, we've got Jerusalem, we've got Ramadan and Passover right around the corner, and already it's. Things are moving in a very dangerous direction.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We will do our best to talk about those things. And Mika, we got to get some people on, some guests on to to talk about what's going on the ground from their perspective.
0: Uh, Let me work on that. Let me talk to a few people on the ground.
1: I guess we're going to do our second goodbye right now. We already talked about how it'd be great to check out the organization Ademir, which supports and shares information about Palestinian prisoners. So, so this is our second sign-off. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.